Hey guys, thank you for joining me for episode four of Creme de la Crime podcast. This week, I'm focusing on cases that took place in the state of Arkansas. According to worldpopulationreview.com, there are 200 unsolved disappearances in the state of Arkansas. It's important to keep in mind that this is based off of known reported cases. It is possible the real number is higher than that. So you already know the drill. Grab your wine and let's dive in to a little Arkansas true crime. To start today's episode, I want to share the story of Morgan Chantel Nick. This case is special to me because me and Morgan actually shared the same birthday. She was just born a couple years before I was. Morgan Nick was born September 12, 1988 in Ozark, Arkansas. On June 9, 1995, Morgan and her mom, Colleen, went to a Little League baseball game in the town of Alma, Arkansas. Around 10.30 p.m., Morgan asked her mom if she could catch fireflies with her friends. At first, Colleen said she was hesitant, but she did eventually let her go. Morgan was last seen at 10.45 p.m. by her friends while she was emptying sand out of her shoes near her mother's car. It's important to note that she was alone at this time because her group of friends were emptying their shoes out a few dozen feet away. When the game ended, Morgan's friends returned without her. They told Colleen that Morgan was at her car, but when Colleen went to the car, Morgan was gone. She has never been seen or heard from again. Witnesses told authorities that they observed an unidentified Caucasian male watching Morgan play on the field earlier that night. This man apparently approached the group of children playing with Morgan and asked them a question. Investigators have never publicly released any additional details about this conversation. The suspect was described as being approximately 23 to 38 years old at the time of the disappearance. Which, I do realize, this is a huge age gap to give to the police, but it's also important to remember that age is one of the hardest things to predict in any crime. Witnesses also stated that he was around 6 foot tall and weighed approximately 180 pounds. The suspect had black or salt and pepper hair, which was combed to the back and possibly curly. He had a mustache and short beard and also had a hairy chest. They said that he wore cut-off blue jean shorts and no shirt or shoes and spoke with a very country accent. Now, I feel like I need to stop here and make a side note about this because I'm picturing in my head these parents being at this Little League game with their children and other friends and family, right? And you have to think, this is a small-town Little League game. So I would think that when you go to these types of events, you pretty much know the majority of the other people that are there, right? Now, I don't have children, so correct me if I'm wrong, but to me, it's like if this group of parents sees this weird, grungy, dirty, shirtless man talking 
to the group of children or to Morgan directly by herself, why is no one thinking that this is weird? That this strange man that nobody knows is by himself talking to this group of children? Anyways, let me know how you feel about this because this is absolutely crazy to me that these people could describe this man in such detail but still didn't see it as a red flag that he was hanging around the children. Witnesses stated that the unidentified man may have been driving a red Ford pickup truck with a white camper that had windows covered with curtains. The truck left the field's parking lot at approximately the same time that Morgan disappeared. It had a dull paint job due to age, a short wheelbase, and was possibly damaged on the right rear end. Witnesses also stated that the camper appeared to be four to five inches shorter than the truck. Authorities later learned the truck was caught on a home video by a person that was recording the Little League ball games that night. A still shot was taken from that video of the truck, but they could not identify the truck's driver. Now remember, this is 1995, okay? So people didn't have their iPhones with the great pixels at the games. This is a 90s recording camera, so I'm sure the quality was not that great. It came out that two attempted abductions occurred in the same general area on June 9th and 10th. In Alma, a suspect resembling Morgan's abductor enticed a four-year-old girl into his red pickup truck. The abduction was interrupted and the girl was saved when her mother saw them and screamed out loud. In Fort Smith, which is 15 miles from Alma, a suspect tried to entice a nine-year-old girl into the men's restroom at a convenience store. He stopped when the girl resisted and authorities announced that both incidents involved the same man. While the man involved in these incidents has not been confirmed to be the same man as in Morgan's case, he resembled the suspect in her disappearance and so did his truck, so the authorities believe that the events are linked. In 2021, authorities named Billy Jack Lynx as a primary person of interest in Morgan's abduction. Billy died in prison in the year 2000 while serving time for an attempted child abduction. The attempted child abduction occurred within two months of Morgan's disappearance and only a few miles away from where she was last seen. Investigators are trying to learn more about his life, associates, and activities. They found out he was born in Crawford County, Arkansas, served in the U.S. Army during World War II, and worked for Braniff Airlines in Dallas, Texas between 1962 and 1974. Billy moved to Van Buren, Arkansas in the late 70s, and investigators believe he had ties to states adjacent to Arkansas, including Tennessee and Oklahoma. On January 15, 2002, police conducted a dig on a private piece of land in Boonville, Arkansas, after receiving a tip that claimed Morgan might have been buried there. They said the tip was so specific that the police decided to dig as well as use police dogs in the search. Police ended this search around 9.30 p.m. and stated that they did not intend to return to that property. On November 15, 2010, federal investigators searched a vacant house in Spiro, Oklahoma for DNA evidence that would show Morgan had once been in that house. Seven years later, on December 18, 2017, 
Investigators returned to that house to conduct another search after they received a tip about Morgan's case. Cadaver dogs alerted the investigators to a well on the property, which they said was the center of the investigation. The search was called off the next day on December 19th after no evidence was found. As of 2021, New leads in Morgan's disappearance continued to be received and investigated at the local, state, and federal level. Colleen Nick started the Morgan Nick Foundation in 1996. The foundation helps parents cope with the disappearances of children and helps prevent children from going missing. Morgan's case was shown on both Unsolved Mysteries and America's Most Wanted. Her family and the foundation were also featured in 2005 on Extreme Makeover Home Edition after the family's house was damaged in a water heater explosion. The Amber Alert service is named the Morgan Nick Amber Alert in the state of Arkansas. Morgan Nick was last seen on June 9, 1995 when she was six years old at a Little League baseball game in Alma, Arkansas. At the time of her disappearance, she was 4 feet tall, weighing approximately 55 pounds. She also had five easily visible silver caps on her teeth. Morgan was last seen wearing a green Girl Scout t-shirt, blue denim shorts, and white tennis shoes. Her case is classified as a non-family abduction. If you have any information regarding the disappearance of Morgan Nick, please contact the Alma Police Department at 479-632-3930. For part two of this episode, I want to share the story of Clashendra Denise Hall, but it's important to note that her family said that she went by Clea So that's what you'll hear me referring to her as throughout this episode. Clashendra Hall was born on March 30, 1976 to parents Willie and Laurel Hall. She disappeared on May 9, 1994 when she was only 18 years old. Clea was an honor student and had landed a summer internship at a Boston pediatrician's office. She had also just been accepted into the pre-med program at Tennessee State University. She had an after-school job at the office of Dr. Larry Amos to save money up for college. His office was located in Pine Bluff, Arkansas, and it's important to note that his office was also located inside of his personal house. Clea lived fairly close to where she worked, so one of her parents typically drove her to and from work. She had no previous history of leaving work without telling anybody. She was reportedly not a troubled teen and had no known reason to voluntarily leave her life. In May of 1994, she attended her senior prom. She was expected to graduate later that month and had been chosen to give a commencement speech at the graduation ceremony. Clea disappeared two weeks before her graduation and never got to attend the ceremony. Clea was scheduled to work at 5 p.m. on Monday, May 9th, 1994. On this particular day, her mom Laurel had dropped her off. Clea disappeared sometime after 8.30 p.m. when she signed out of work. She called her mom just after 8 p.m., but told her that she had a little more work to do and was not ready to be picked up yet. 
She told her mom to expect a second phone call for the ride home, but the second phone call never came. Laurel said she fell asleep while waiting for Clea to call her back. She woke up around 12.45 a.m. when her husband came home from work. She soon realized that Clea had never called her for the ride and had never come home, so she immediately called Dr. Amos at his house. She said that he answered on the very first ring. The first time I casually read through this case and came across that detail of him answering on the first ring, it just kind of stuck with me and really struck me as odd because this is almost 1 a.m. in the morning. I was trying to toss around theories in my head of what I, you know, why would he answer on the first ring? Maybe because it never stated what type of doctor he actually was. So I'm assuming he's your common medical doctor. Maybe he did house calls. When Dr. Amos answered Laurel's call, He told her that Clea had signed out of work at 8.30 p.m. and he had seen her get into a car with an unidentified person. What's strange about this is even though he said that he saw her get in this car, right? He could not give the police a description of anything about this car. So he couldn't give them a description of the driver, a partial license plate. He couldn't tell them the color of this car, the make, the model, the possible year, nothing. At first, Laurel said she was kind of annoyed, thinking Clea might just be acting out a little, but she said that Clea had never done anything like this before. Her mom simply had no idea who might have picked her up from work. Her annoyance soon turned into worry as the hours went by and Clea still never came home. Laurel said that she stayed up for the rest of the night. Clea was supposed to be at school early on Tuesday for band practice, and even though she stayed out late, no one thought that she would actually skip school. Remember that this is two weeks from graduation, okay? And Clea is literally the freaking valedictorian. She's an honor student. She's been accepted into this pre-med program at Tennessee State. So students like Clea don't just suddenly start skipping school right before they graduate. Her younger brother looked for her as soon as he got to Watson Chapel, but there was no sign of Clea anywhere. He immediately called his parents and told them that Clea was not at school, so Laurel called the Pine Bluff Police Department to attempt to report her missing. They were told that they would have to wait 24 hours until they were allowed to file a missing persons report since Clea was legally an adult. This detail is so frustrating to me, and I actually myth-busted this a while back on my social media. There is no federal mandate that says 24 hours have to pass before someone can be reported missing. I mean, if you've ever watched a crime show in your life, you know that the first 48 hours are the most crucial in any case. Now, I also do understand, okay, that the police do have to kind of vet a little bit because there are so many people reported missing that aren't really missing and these people end up showing up later. But in cases like Clea's where you've got someone that has no history of acting out, no drug use, no alcohol use, Clea was not a partier, she wasn't even known to have a boyfriend at this time, And it's just so frustrating that 
you can't take a parent's word that this is not normal for my child. My child has never not come home. And I cannot even fathom in my brain how it would feel to have nobody believe you, especially the police that are like your only resource of help. So let me know how you guys feel about this. Since police refused to take the report, Willie and Laurel spent the entire day calling anyone they could think of that might know where Clea was, but no one had seen her. They waited until 5 p.m. around the 24-hour mark and drove directly to the Pine Bluff Police Station and filled out a missing person report. Police were legally obligated to take the report at this point, but they were not concerned and did nothing to search for Clea. They told her parents that Clea was likely out with her friends and she would probably come home soon. This is one of those cases, guys, that will frustrate the shit out of you because the police really dropped the ball on this one and they were just so nonchalant with her family about what had happened and so unconcerned that by the time they honestly started taking this seriously, it was just too late. Too much time had passed. The evidence was probably gone at this point, and it just is so frustrating. Her mom stressed that Clea was not the type of teenager that would run away. She also had not taken anything with her. Her purse, identification, and all of her belongings were still in her bedroom. Clea didn't even have her own bank account yet. Since they weren't getting any help from the police, the family decided to do their own search. The family searched the wooded lot across the street from the Amos house first, but said that they didn't find anything related to Clea. They also made missing flyers with her information and posted them all over town, but still received no leads. After Clea had been missing for a few days, the detectives finally got involved in the search. A few days. She has been missing for multiple days at this point before the police even began to look for this girl. They started interviewing the people closest to her, and they were particularly interested in a male student that some people claimed was Clea's boyfriend. Now keep in mind, her family stated she did not have a boyfriend at this time, so I know she's in high school. It is possible she lied to them, so I'm not sure. But from everything I've found, people said she did not have a confirmed boyfriend. So I don't know who this guy is. They've never released his name. They asked this guy to take a polygraph test and he did agree. But the results ended up being inconclusive. Remember, polygraphs are not always reliable and they're not admissible in court. So take that with a grain of salt. This guy also gave the police permission to search his vehicle and they were unable to find anything to connect him to Clea. A lot of times when someone is this forthcoming, like, sure, I'll take the polygraph. Yeah, take my car, go through it, whatever. It kind of seems like to me this guy doesn't have anything to hide. And he doesn't seem to me to be the best possible suspect, as you'll see as we go through. But at this point, obviously, we can't rule anyone out. Police then spoke to Dr. Amos, and he told them the same story that he had told Laurel when she had called. Another employee that worked in the same office told them a different story, though. She said that she had signed out of work and had offered Clea a ride home. She said Clea declined, 
saying that she was going to walk home, but this was something that she had never done before. Since this was something she didn't normally do, people speculate that she might have lied to hide the identity of whoever was picking her up that night. This obviously has never been officially confirmed. Although authorities were slow to start their investigation, they quickly realized that Clea had likely been the victim of foul play. They finally agreed with her parents that there was no reason for her to leave voluntarily. She also wasn't the type who would get in a car with someone that she didn't know. Because of this, detectives believe that someone she knew picked her up and that person is responsible for her disappearance. Despite following a number of leads, they've never been able to establish the type of vehicle that picked up Clea or the identity of the driver. Clea's parents were very suspicious of Dr. Amos from the very beginning. As far as they were concerned, he was the last person to see their daughter, making him a logical suspect. I think it's important to also note that the day after Clea went missing, Dr. Amos left on a business trip to Texas. This meant that he wasn't available to be interviewed by police until nearly two weeks after Clea disappeared. Dr. Amos also refused to take a polygraph test, but with no physical evidence linking him to a crime, there was nothing the police could do. I want to take a second and pause right here because I'm going to play devil's advocate. If this was me personally, I don't care if I'm completely 100% without a doubt innocent and an officer wants me to take a polygraph test, I'm refusing it. I don't care what it's for. I don't care what the case is about. I'm only saying that because they are so unreliable. I don't think someone refusing a polygraph necessarily makes them seem any more guilty. How do you guys feel? Would you take one? DM me and let me know. When Dr. Amos returned from his trip two weeks later, the police finally searched his home and personal office. Lieutenant Terry Hobson of the Pine Bluff Police Department reported the search of the Amos home failed to turn up any evidence that Clea was injured or attacked there. Detectives told the media that they had several persons of interest in Clea's disappearance, but they never officially named any suspects. Leads continued to be called in, but the case quickly went cold. Clea's family refused to let the case be forgotten. They placed pink bows all over town, including on police cars, to remind people that Clea was still missing. Every year, the family holds a balloon release on her birthday, and they continue to pray for information about what happened to her that night. Clea's disappearance was later featured in an episode of Find Our Missing. According to Terry Hobson, the local police have spent many hours and manpower on this case over the years. Terry said the investigation was still ongoing as of 2009. The local police considered Clea's case likely to involve kidnapping, but reportedly have no clues to the identity of any potential kidnappers. In 2012, a construction worker who had done work for Dr. Amos in the late 90s told police that he had seen what he believed to be blood splattered on some of the insulation in Dr. Amos's house. 
Another worker noted that he had smelled an extremely foul odor while doing some work on the property around the same time. To this day, it's unclear why the men waited almost 20 years to come forward, but they did provide enough for police to be able to get another search warrant for Dr. Amos's property. Investigators carried out the search on March 29, 2012. Cadaver dogs and radar equipment were used to search the home, office, and surrounding property. They removed four bags of evidence from the house to be submitted for further testing, but did not find any sign of blood like the man had claimed. Police said that Dr. Amos was cooperative during the search, but made no official comment to the swarming media cameras outside of his house. With this search, Willie and Laurel were hopeful that they would finally learn what happened to Clea, but the case took an unexpected turn. Instead of passing the four bags of evidence to the crime scene technicians, a detective put the items in the personal trunk of his car. He later stated that he did this because he was parked in the driveway, but the crime scene investigations truck was parked a block away. He said with the media surrounding the area, he thought this would be the easiest and quickest way to get the evidence where it needed to go. But, rather than return to the police station and log these items into evidence, he drove home for the night and left the items in the trunk of his car. This obviously made everyone in the family question the chain of custody and the integrity of the entire investigation. And hold on tight because the bullshit is not over yet, guys. The police chief assured Clea's family that the items had been sent to the lab to check for the presence of blood. Willie and Laurel waited weeks and had still received no answers. A month later, when they finally spoke to police chief Brenda Davis-Jones, she assured them that the items were in the process of being tested and that any delay was caused by the state crime lab and not the police. Clea's family soon learned that this was a lie and that the police had never even sent the evidence to the lab to begin with. So at this point, her friends and family are obviously completely outraged, and reasonably so, right? They accuse the department of being incompetent and of hindering the investigation. The evidence that was collected was finally sent out to the lab, but test results found no blood on any of the items collected from the house. Her parents still were not convinced and wondered if there was some kind of police conspiracy to keep the identity of the killer unknown. Police, of course, have denied all accusations surrounding this, but it's really easy to understand why the family would feel this way. Clashendra Hall was 18 years old when she went missing on May 9, 1994. She is an African-American woman with short black hair and brown eyes. At the time of her disappearance, she was 5'8 and weighed around 120 pounds. She was last seen wearing a white shirt with blue stripes, white shorts with navy blue polka dots, white socks, and white tennis shoes. She was wearing small stud earrings, press-on nails, hair extensions, and a white bow in her hair. She also had a surgical scar on her left knee. Clea's case is classified as endangered missing. If you have any information regarding the disappearance of Clashendra Hall, 
please contact the Pine Bluff Police Department at 870-543-5100. That's all I have for this week's episode, but if any of my listeners have a loved one that disappeared and you would like their story shared in a future episode of this show, please reach out via email podcast 7 at gmail.com, head over to Instagram and follow me at Pod, and don't forget to keep your eyes and ears open out here. Until next week, this is Sam signing off. <music> <laughs>